Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. This is the second episode of a two-episode series on the Pettit family murders in Cheshire, Connecticut. I know we're straining the boundaries of our geographical limitations, being metropolitan Boston and all, but if you remember in the first episode, I stated that all Bostonians merely see the rest of New England as their backyard. So Boston Confidential today is extending down to Cheshire, Connecticut. Like I had previously mentioned, this is the second episode of the Pettit family murders in Cheshire. So if you missed the first one, you might want to go back and start there. And I do feel the need to reiterate the warning I had given. This is going to be a graphic episode. The last episode wasn't super graphic, but we're getting up to the day of the crime starting today. And if you remember from the previous episode, I had given you the background of Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komasajewski, the perpetrators of this heinous, heinous act. This episode is going to be difficult. I'm going to take you through the day of the murders, which happened on Sunday, July 23rd, 2007. So this is going to be a difficult one, guys. So I guess we should just get right to it. So on Sunday, July 22nd, 2007, the Pettits were enjoying a day mostly together at their house. And this was kind of unusual for them because they were always so busy. But now they were going to be home for a Sunday evening together, and they were going to take advantage of it. Dr. Pettit, for his part during the day, fit in 18 holes of golf with his father, and he was home at the residence in Cheshire. Earlier in the afternoon, both Haley and Michaela, the youngest, went to a local pool club, a beach club, and had a swim in the pool, but had since returned home. And tonight was Michaela's favorite night of the week. She was cooking dinner. She was an aspiring chef, and she liked to try new vegan items. And this night, she was going to concoct a pasta sauce of native tomatoes, garlic, olive oil, basil, and she mixed up a balsamic vinaigrette for the salad. Now, all of this is supremely impressive for an adult, but keep in mind, Michaela is 11 years old. Her favorite TV shows centered around cooking, and it was stated that she wanted to concoct the world's greatest recipe for a root beer float. So she seemed kind of like a funny kid, but definitely loved cooking. Michaela needed some ingredients from the supermarket and began pestering her mom to take her. So mom does what most moms do. They hop in the SUV and they drive about 10 minutes to the stop and shop in Cheshire, Connecticut, not very far from the residence. So Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her youngest, Michaela, arrive at Stop and Shop, and they're going to 
pick up some ingredients for Michaela's recipe that evening. However, despite being unaware, Pettit's Sunday was going to change drastically because they came into contact somehow with Joshua Komisarjewski. He was looking for people to rob or potentially rob at Stop and Shop or within that whole plaza there. Unfortunately, Jennifer Hawk Pettit caught Komisarjewski's eye. Jennifer Hawk Pettit was a beautiful woman. Yes, she was getting a little bit older, but she had taken very good care of herself throughout her life. And she was a beautiful, blonde-haired, fit woman. And she caught the eye of Komisarjewski. At least I like to think so. But I may be wrong. There are some media reports that Michaela is the one who caught Komisarjewski's eye. It's just a little difficult for me to talk to. Michaela was coming into her own. She was 11 years old, coming into teenagehood, I guess, and somehow caught this guy's eye as well. So the duo did their shopping throughout Stop and Shop, and they're caught on camera in the store. They're having a good time. But when they come out, Josh was now transfixed, and they leave and head home, and they're going to make the pasta sauce. Joshua has other ideas, although they're not going to be implemented right away. Joshua follows them to their house on Sorghum Road in Cheshire, notes the address, and knows pretty quickly he's going to return to this address and set the stage for the worst crime in Connecticut history. So after Mom and Michaela return with the groceries from Stop and Shop, everybody unloads the groceries and... Mom and Michaela begin the process of cooking dinner. Haley is in the house somewhere, and Dad is kind of lounging around. It was kind of an odd occurrence that they'd all be home on a Sunday afternoon, but they were definitely enjoying it and looking forward to dinner. And you'll be happy to know that Michaela's recipe came out flawlessly, and everybody enjoyed dinner. After dinner, the girls took their Harry Potter books and went their separate ways. Dr. Pettit, for his part, went on the outside porch. It's an enclosed porch room where he ended up falling asleep. He had a long day playing golf with his dad, and he ended it just right having dinner with his family. So Dr. Pettit had drifted off to sleep on the sun porch, and he'd be awakened at about 3 a.m. by Joshua Komisarjewski, who had broken into his home. They had broken in through the back bulkhead door, and Commissar Jeske began patrolling the first floor, and he stumbled across Dr. Pettit in the sun porch. At a certain point on the way into the house, Commissar Jeske found a baseball bat that had been left in the cellar or near the cellar stairs. He used this baseball bat to smash Dr. Pettit in the head four to five times specifically in the forehead. Naturally, Dr. Pettit is knocked unconscious, and I'm assuming Hayes and Komisarjewski had hoped that they had killed him, because I don't know, this is supposed to be just a burglary, but you smash somebody sitting in a chair five times in the head. It sounded like murder from the beginning to me, but their defense was that it was just going to be a breaking and entering. It went wrong right away. Hayes and Komisarjewski put Dr. Pettit in the cellar and tie him to a pole. 
Komasajewski and Hayes go upstairs and they tie Michaela, Haley, and Jennifer to their respective beds and they put pillowcases over their heads. They had brought with them some rope and ties, zip ties. So it's hard for me to fathom the defense that this was just going to be a B&E when they knew they were going to have to tie these people up. So it was already more than a mere break-in, but things would get worse, progressively worse. Hayes and Komosajewski start combing the residents for valuables, money, and all that. They come across a check register that delineates the finances for the Pettit family, and they somehow figure there's $40,000 in some type of checking or savings account that they can access, and they know they'll be frozen out if they attempt to take this money out through an ATM. So they come up with a plan to have Jennifer Hawk Pettit accompany one of them to the local bank where she'll take a check for $15,000 and withdraw that amount of money. And at this point, the assailants, Hayes and Komosajewski, although they had used a baseball bat on Dr. Pettit, were not being super aggressive with the family. And I believe Jennifer Hawk Pettit thought she could ride this out, give them what they want, send them on their way. It's a legitimate avenue to take. I think during the majority of this time, Dr. Pettit was still tied up in the cellar or the basement, and they really hadn't heard from him. He had a severe, severe head injury, multiple head injuries, really. So I don't know if there was any conversation between husband and wife at this time. But before they decide to do this, Komosajewski and Hayes actually leave the Pettit residence. And I'm sure the Pettits thought they hit the jackpot, but something changed among these assailants. And I don't know if they will recognize the author of the book I had read on the subject, Michael Benson. Benson wrote Murder in Connecticut, the shocking crime that destroyed a family and united a community. So Benson believed that Komosajewski may have been recognized because Komosajewski was actually from Cheshire and everybody in town knew the Pettits. They were very well known. They were prominent neighbors, active in all kinds of stuff. So the author speculates that maybe Komosajewski either recognized them or they recognized him, but something changed drastically. So at this point, Hayes and Komosajewski leave the Pettit residence and drive a short distance away. And they purchase just a few dollars of gasoline. They had utilized the gas station within Cheshire, right down the street. But it was at this point, prosecutors point to as premeditation. They, this changed from a burglary to, at a minimum, it was going to be an arson. Why did they need gasoline? They had stolen some canisters from the Pettit garage and all that, filled them up with like $10 worth of gasoline, and they stashed Josh's car further away, I think actually at the same plaza that they had been in, in Stop and Shop. But either way, they stashed Josh's car, and then they returned to the Pettit house. And I'm sure the Pettits must have been kicking themselves of not being able to get away in that time frame. But the assailants were back in the house, and things were about to go haywire. At 9 a.m., Hayes takes 
Jennifer Hawk Pettit in one of the Pettit's SUVs, and they drive from the residence on Sorghum Road just a short distance down to the Stop and Shop Plaza again, where they go into a Bank of America. And the threat's already been made to the Pettit's. Go get this money out, take this check, cash it at the desk, and we're going to be watching you. And if I get a phone call from Stephen Hayes, Komo Sajewski is going to light the house on fire and kill them all. So that was the threat. They get to the bank. Hayes and Jennifer Hawk Pettit get to the bank at about 9.19. It's relatively busy at Bank of America. It's uh, Monday after a summer weekend, and everybody's still kind of dragging. And it is moderately full, the bank, but they know Jennifer Hawk Pettit, and she gets serviced right away. She goes up to the teller, and the teller could tell right away just from the energy that Jennifer was emitting that was something was wrong, and it was very wrong. So Jennifer is completely brave through all this. She knows she has to do this to save her family. And she's going to do it. But the energy she's giving off is starting to attract some attention. She gets up to the teller. She goes to the last teller in line and hands the deposit slip over. But she also hands another note and says, my family is being held hostage. I need to withdraw $15,000 or my family will be killed. And keep in mind, Stephen Hayes still has her in his line of sight. He's sitting in the parking lot looking through the window. So if the teller tips off right away, he's going to know and he's going to call Komatsajewski. So the teller, she was excellent through this. She gets the note. She completes the transaction, although Jennifer Hawk Pettit typically wouldn't have been able to withdraw that amount of money. It's a large amount of money. I think you've got to call ahead and request it. But she gave her the money and the energy that Jennifer Hawk Pettit was giving off was just like complete fear. People could smell it from Jennifer. Other customers could sense something was wrong. But the teller gave Jennifer her $15,000, and the bank teller turned to her manager and handed the manager the note. And the first call to the police went through at 921, and this would become important later, but at 921, the bank manager calls the Cheshire Police Department, and it doesn't really go well, and it doesn't speak well of the Cheshire Police, and I'm sorry to have to say that. I know they're a small town, but they're a relatively large department, about 50 police and I think about six or seven detectives. So the call goes in, and they get passed around. It's not really a bank robbery, but the bank manager said that Jennifer Hawk Pettit was definitely under duress. By this time, Jennifer Hawk Pettit was out of the bank and walked back to Stephen Hayes in the car, and they were departing. But they were on the phone with the police department. You'd think there'd be plenty of time to sort this out. But the police couldn't really get it. They couldn't understand what was going on. And the bank manager was transferred a few times and then actually asked to call back at a different number. So all of this with dispatch takes several minutes, about six minutes. At 9.26 a.m., the first report of this incident at Bank of America comes over the air to the police officers. But it's kind of vague, stating that somebody was nervous withdrawing money and all this. 
it wasn't very directed and it wasn't very specific. Again, we'll get into that more later, but that's how the call went out originally. So I don't know exactly how the call went out to the officers in that sector, but the police come storming to the bank. I'm kind of befuddled about that because why would you need so many officers at the bank when the perpetrators or whomever needed assistance was already gone? So at a certain point, they do a license check on Jennifer Hawk Pettit and all this, and they get her name and address. Shortly thereafter, the name and address go out and the police start making their way to the Pettit residence. So the only good luck in this case thus far was the fact that a patrolman, a police officer, was patrolling right near the Pettit residence, less than a mile. So the call goes out, and this patrolman is Johnny on the spot and begins making his way there. And when he gets there, the Pettit car that they had taken to the bank was already there. He lays back and doesn't want to give away his position. He didn't want to drive by the house, and he didn't do that. So he was staging in the Pettit's neighborhood, and other cops would soon arrive to do the same. When Hayes took Jennifer Hawk Pettit to the bank, Komisarjewski was left home with the rest of the Pettit family. And unfortunately, he used this time to conduct the crime I believe he actually set out to commit, and that was rape. He raped little Michaela Pettit, age 11, if you can believe that. She was tied to her bed, and he raped her, and that is not up for debate. His semen was found inside of her post-mortem. He had taken photographs of her with his crappy little cell phone and videos of him doing the crime, the actual penetration to this 11-year-old girl. So this went from a felony crime to absolutely unholy what this kid did. There is no speculation, and this is not up for debate. He raped Michaela, and he videotaped it, and the Cheshire police found Komisarjewski's phone when this was all over, and it was introduced as evidence at the trial, so there's really no debate about it. Okay, so the police are staging in the area, and all the assailants are back in the house along with Jennifer Hawk Pettit. But as soon as Jennifer Hawk Pettit returned to the house, and they did have the money with them, so you think that would make them happy and get these maniacs out of there, but it did not. So I believe what had happened when they had decided, when Komisar Jeski and Hayes had decided to go get those few dollars worth of gasoline, they decided exactly what they were going to do. They were going to go to the bank. Komisarjewski was going to rape Michaela. And when they came back from the bank, Hayes raped Jennifer Hawk Pettit. And it was loud, and it was bloody, and it was nasty. And as he's raping her, he's choking her. And something tells Dr. Pettit in the interior of his soul to get up and get out of that house right at the same time. So he does that. He breaks free of his restraints and gets out through the bulkhead. And he kind of hops along, crawls along out of the bulkhead into his neighbor's house. The neighbor sees him coming 
and doesn't recognize him. His head is so swollen and covered in blood. And now at this time, the police have to expose themselves a little bit to take care of Dr. Pettit. So they do that. But I think at this point, this is when Commissar Jeske and Hayes know that the police are onto them. They're right outside. So Hayes kills Jennifer Hawk Pettit, and they start to go haywire inside the house. They start dumping gasoline all over the house. They pour gasoline on Jennifer Pettit all over, and she had to be identified through dental records. They poured gasoline directly onto Michaela and directly onto Haley, and they start getting ready to leave or at least make a break for it, and they do that, but they strike a match. It is believed to be Hayes who lit the match to this house, and Hayes smelled of gasoline. He actually reeked of gasoline. It was all over his pants when these jackasses were caught. So they strike the match on the way out the front door. The Pettits owned a Chevy Pacifica, I believe it is, and they back that out. And now they're surrounded in the neighborhood, and they see all the cops. SWAT team is coming, everything. So they drive right at them. They try to get out of there. But when they do that, they smash into one of the police cruisers, and they disable their own vehicle. Commissar Jeske, at that point, throws his phone with all of that evidence on it out to the street where it was recovered. These two guys ended up surrendering. They were very tough in that house, but when they were confronted by grown men with weapons who could harm them back, they surrendered like little children. So in that short interim time where these knuckleheads try to get away from the police, the house is burning and it's full of gasoline, so it's going quickly, and it's harrowing. Dr. Pettit had gotten out through the bulkhead, but his wife, Jennifer, was murdered, and gasoline was poured on his other two children. Haley, for her part, somehow managed to break free of her restraints, and she ended up close to the door. She almost made it out of this mess, but she was covered in burns and ended up dying of smoke inhalation right there. Michaela never got free of her restraints and died from burns and smoke inhalation while tied to her own bed in her own house. So Komisar Jeffsky and Hayes, the master criminals that they are, were apprehended within 100 yards or less of the padded house, cuffed and stuffed and taken to the police station like they had been many, many times before. And the police began their investigation with a background check, which found out these two guys, these two low lives, were out on parole, and they never should have been. What police believe happened was that when Dr. Pettit escaped from the basement and hobbled over to his neighbor's house, the assailants, Komsar Jeske and Hayes, became aware that the police were in the area. That's when they poured the gasoline around the house. I'm afraid to say they doused Jennifer Hawk Pettit in gasoline. They also put gasoline directly on the bodies of Michaela and Haley. It would later come out at trial that these dingbats thought that getting rid of the DNA that they had spewed all over this house, that they could beat this rap. But keep in mind, the sequence that happens here is 
The girls are still alive. Yes, they've been sexually assaulted, but they're tied to their beds. I think Mrs. Pettit had been killed already. But the girls, one of which is 11 years old, is still alive. And you make the decision to douse them in gasoline. Well, you know the police are right outside. You're going to be caught. They thought this was some grand scheme. They thought they were going to burn away their DNA. And they tried. They weren't successful because they're idiots, but they certainly tried. They struck that match, and then they ran out to that car, and they took off, and they left those girls to fend for themselves. At 9.58 on that morning, the assailants had just fled, and the police report on the radio that a fire, a live house fire, is underway, and it exploded from the area of the front stairs up and towards the bedroom in the foyer. So that's 9.58, and the police would come under fire for a gap in time. Well, actually, two gaps in time, really. The first gap that they criticize the police on is the five-minute gap between the first 911 call going in and the officers being dispatched to the Pettit household. But there's another more glaring 26-minute gap between when officers first arrived at the Pettit house and when they took any action. And I think the first action that they really took was removing Dr. Pettit from hobbling. You know, the criticism is they should have at least called and let them know that they're surrounded. I don't think these two jamokes would have risked their lives. I'm not entirely sure, but they seem to be typical convicts, self-preservationists at all levels. So if they know they're going up against grown men with weapons, I don't think they're going to risk that. I think they may have surrendered. But the police chose not to do that. They were arming up. I actually find it a little difficult in criticizing the police in this one. Nobody thinks that people are going to tie people to a bed in suburban Cheshire, Connecticut, and light them on fire, knowing that you're surrounded by the police. This did happen. Of course, it's just a crazy world. That's the world the police live in. They were arming up. They would have liked nothing better to walk in there and put those two guys out of everybody's misery. So I don't think this was a lack of valor. I don't think they were cowards for not going in. They were preparing to go in. They just ran out of time. These guys discovered that they were under surveillance. They were surrounded, and they were going to make a break for it. Unfortunately, I don't know which one did this whole fire thing, but remember, they went and got that gasoline before they even went to the bank. This was planned out. I think these guys were just the animals. They're evil. And they set those girls on fire, and they should be held accountable. There's a lot more in the news accounts about the criticism of the police. I'm not going to engage in it here, because I just think it's one of those things that went south. They're a small department. They're not used to this. They were getting ready to go in. And the only people to blame in this are Hayes and Komisar Jeske, and maybe some other people in our judicial system, but... I don't think the police are directly responsible for this. These animals did that. They went to trial. I think Hayes at one point wanted to plead guilty, and then his lawyers talked him out of it. But they both ended up with trials. The evidence was overwhelming. There's so much evidence transfer. There was DNA, and I don't want to get into where it was found, but you remember the whole story. And the evidence was just absolutely overwhelming. They were literally caught red-handed, so... The state of Connecticut, for their part, made a good move. Right from the outset, they said they were going to 
seek the death penalty in this case. At the time, the state of Connecticut had the death penalty, and they gave judicial notice to seek such a penalty. So that was good news. So during the police investigation of this case, Komisad Jeski ultimately confesses, and he confesses pretty quickly. There was really no reason to hide anything that they had done. Like I had mentioned previously, they were caught red-handed. Komisadjewski admitted to raping Kayla and stating that what a guy this guy is. He thought she was 14 or 15, so that's his justification on it. He never really got into why they both left the house. Komisadjewski and Hayes left the house to go purchase that gasoline. It was all just a nightmare. This lasted seven hours for the Pettit family, and it was just a nightmare. The trials go the way you thought they would. Hayes wanted to do the right thing briefly, but the convict inside him prevented him from doing so. He had wanted to plead guilty to save Dr. Pettit and the rest of the state of Connecticut a trial. At a certain point, Hayes states that the death penalty is preferable to him rather than to live with what he has done to the Pettit family and everybody else in his life, really. But that changed. He wanted to save his life, still does. Both these scumbags were ultimately convicted. And the only real good news in this case is that Hayes is in prison, in a supermax prison in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania and Connecticut have a compact to swap prisoners when needed. And Mr. Hayes is gloriously serving his time in the Green Supermax prison in Green County, Pennsylvania. Komisad Jeski is serving his time within the state of Connecticut. Both defendants received the death penalty, multiple death penalties in this case. And as soon as the trial was over and the spotlight was off the state of Connecticut, the legislature did something totally underhanded, and I've never seen before, but it's sickening, really. The legislature, the House of Representatives, filed bill after bill to get rid of the death penalty, and that's their right, but they were trying to save Komisadjewski and Hayes, and they knew they couldn't, but they could save future Komisadjewskis and future Stephen Hayeses, and that's what they tried to do. They moved heaven and earth to get a bill to the desk of Republican Governor M. Jody Rell. Rell, for his part, months later stated, and I believe accurately, and I'm going to read it to you, Governor Rell stated that the crimes that were committed on that brutal July night were so far out of the range of normal understanding that now, more than three years later, we still find it difficult to accept that they happened in one of our communities. I have long believed that there are certain crimes so heinous so depraved that society is best served by imposing the ultimate sanction on the criminal. Stephen Hayes stands convicted of such crimes, and today the jury has recommended that he should be subjected to the death penalty. I agree. So subsequently, Governor Rell vetoes that bill. But the following year, Rell loses re-election to Democrat Dan Malloy, and Dan Malloy immediately signs the bill. So at that point, there was no longer a death penalty sanction in the state of Connecticut, but that would only cover new crimes. It wouldn't cover Hayes and Komisadjewski, and these guys deserved the needle in the arm. They certainly did. So 
after this, the Connecticut Supreme Court, in their infinite wisdom, ruled in some subsequent case that the death penalty in all cases is unconstitutional and incompatible with the constitution of the state of Connecticut. And that led Komosajewski and Hayes and whomever else was on that list off the death penalty and into life in prison without parole. To have watched one political party bow down to Hayes and Komosajewski in an effort to save their lives was sickening to me. The death penalty was created for Hayes and Komosajewski. Their brutality, they do not deserve to breathe the same air as normal people. But this one political party thought, we need to save these two, and they did. And now Hayes is in a supermax prison. Komosajewski is serving time in Connecticut. Komosajewski wanted a retrial, citing the press coverage. He wanted to have relocated his trial, and he was denied. So he was appealing on that. This is just what convicts do. They retrial, retrial, lawsuit just to get out of prison for a few days and maybe get a submarine sandwich from the local shop by the courthouse that they have to feed these guys. This is all these people do. Self-preservation. How do I make myself one degree more comfortable in prison? So Mr. Hayes, for his part, and I was so happy to hear he's in a supermax, but he's also now declaring that he's a transgender. And I believe he's doing this to go to a woman's prison because time in women's prison, especially for a transgender man or transgender woman, whatever they may identify as, it's just much easier. It's much more cushy time. Stephen Hayes is not a woman. He's just a convict trying to scam. Every day is a scam for them. They want to feather their own nest, and that's all it is. All right, guys, I'm a little emotional on this case, as you can tell. It really stuck with me. I'm going to leave you here, though, and you'll be getting this episode just after Christmas, and I hope you had a wonderful holiday. I wanted to leave you with a good thought on this. Dr. Pettit was devastated by what happened to him, but in 2012, he remarried. He married a woman who had volunteered for the Pettit Family Foundation, something Dr. Pettit had set up after the death of his family. And Christine Palouf was a local actress, and she volunteered, and they began a relationship shortly thereafter, and in 2012, they were married. And ultimately, they had a son, William Pettit III. So I wish Dr. Pettit, his new wife and son, all the best. They've suffered so much in this life. I hope Dr. Pettit, his wife, and son find ultimate happiness. And I'm going to leave you there, guys. This was a tough case. Talk to you soon.